This is Stories of Win, where we showcase amazing women in neuroscience. We chat with them about their research, their unique journeys through academia, and what drives their passion for studying the brain. Here is one of their stories. I'm Meenakshi from Stories of Win, and I'm so excited to be here today with Dr. Jessica Osterhout, who's an assistant professor of neurobiology at the University of Utah. Thank you so much for being here with us. Thank you so much for having me. I'm actually a huge fan of the podcast, so I'm really happy to be here. So let's start with how you first got interested in studying the brain. When did you discover your passion for neuroscience and research? Yeah, I think, um, you know, I... uh, I got interested in biology back in, you know, high school, right? And um, maybe like other people, I didn't really know that being a scientist was a job or a profession um, at that level, you know, as a high school student. So I thought the only way you could learn about things like genetics, which is what we learned about in AP Biology, um, was to be a doctor. So I went and started as a pre-med student. And a friend of mine who was also pre-med said, you know, it's really great to to work in a lab that really helps your application in med school. And, you know, I was only a, uh, a freshman. I was like, oh, sure, like, I can I can go do that. And I got super lucky. I think a lot of my career is, is luck, really. But I, uh, I started working in a lab um, at the University of Oregon where I did my undergrad. And I was working in Dr. Chris Doe's lab. And so Chris Doe studies uh, uh, neuroblast self renewal or a neural development in a fly model system. And I got I got in there partially because uh, he pays his undergrads. You know, a lot of undergrad um, research positions are volunteer basis or for credit. Um, but <clears throat> part of my background, you know, I needed I needed to be able to afford uh, college and um, living and all those things on my own. So I um, I was able to get you know minimum wage or a little bit above to work in his lab. And <clears throat> at the time, I, I it sort of dawned on me. Oh my gosh! Like these people are are doing science as a job, <laughs> as a career. I was like, man, this is really cool. And you know, I started off with uh, you know cleaning fly cages, and the, you know, if you work in flies at all, you know, it's pretty gross. Um, so I started off with kind of doing those sort of jobs and appreciating the, all the different things that go into um, you know keeping a lab running. And then eventually got to do some independent work, working with a, a couple of different graduate students and a postdoc um, over over the course of three years. And I felt, you know, fell in love with this um, this field of neural development um, and studying, you know, how how a brain sort of gets put together. Were you were you studying um, vision in flies as well? No, no. So we were, we were looking at um, the very very early stages of development. So in the fly um, uh, spinal cord, so to speak, um, during the larval stages, you can look and see what the genes are, are what genes are required for generating uh, d- differentiated neuron versus or differentiated uh, pre-neuron and uh, neuroblast cell renewal, so re- um, a new daughter cell that can create more neurons thereafter. And so we were looking at really, really early parts of development, um, looking for, you know, the genes, the, the where they're located in, in the cell division. Um, I was part of a big RNAi screen where we knocked out many, many, many different genes to see if there's any new um uh, players in, in that sort of molecular mechanism. And so at, at this point, were you considering, were you still considering med school or did that just uh, make you decide that you want to like go to graduate school and do research? Yeah, I was out of medical school as soon as I re- <laughs> realized, because what I really liked was the science part of it. You know, I really, in, in AP biology, we, uh, you know, we didn't do a ton of neuroscience actually, um, but we had this whole, um, uh, part on genetics and I was like man genetics is so cool like the fact that like your genes can can dictate uh diseases you might have in the future and things like that. I just thought it was fascinating so um yeah I wasn't really about the the med school I wasn't really about patient care unfortunately it was more about the science of it that's great it's good for all of us to have you and um so then what about the, the transition to graduate school um how did you like choose the research topic that you wanted to study during graduate school? Yeah, yeah. So I, um, I guess a, a theme to like my whole career is not only luck but um, keeping my options open. So I, I didn't necessarily 
think that I had to stay in neuroscience. When I went to um, apply for grad school, I applied to umbrella programs. But I was, it was recommended to me to do just because perhaps they're easier to get in. I was told that I wasn't going to get in anywhere, actually, by the student I was working with, which is really unfortunate. And so I had a little bit of imposter syndrome studying that early. Uh, but I, I applied to a lot of the UC schools because I really wanted to get out of Oregon. It's, it's quite dark and dreary for nine months out of the year. And so I applied to several places in California and ended up getting into uh, uh, several of them, which I was really excited about. Um, and I chose UC San Diego um, partially because there was so many cool people to work with, um, but also because the cost of living compared to the stipend, um, that sort of ratio was much more livable. Um, and again, when I'm sort of, I sort of, you know, had to pay my way through a lot of things. Um, I, that was really important to me. So I went to UC San Diego and, and I rotated in several different labs, um, that were development, like not necessarily neural development, just development in general, um, a neural development lab, a cancer lab, um, and then a couple of neuroscience labs. And at, in, at UC San Diego, you can do four rotations or up to six. I ended up doing a fifth rotation, um, and the, the fifth one was just the best fit. Um, I uh, ended up joining um, Andy Huberman's lab there while he, while he was still in uh, UC San Diego. That's great. So firstly, I, I hope that person who kind of discouraged you from offline listens to this and be like, yes, I made a mistake. Uh, I doubt uh, it. I doubt he listens to anything. <laughs> no, he's, he's uh, very successful. And I really like admired him because he um, was a great scientist, but he's, he's now in a totally different field and uh, runs a lab somewhere else in California. But yeah, you know, it was, it was, I think he was just being honest. He thought he was being helpfully honest. Um, but yeah, it was, <laughs> it was pretty discouraging. But now he knows it's, it's that was wrong. Um, yeah. But okay, so then, um, so you worked with Dr. Andrew Huberman and what mm -hmm. topic, uh, what topic did you focus on? And uh, also yeah. like what made you at that point, you know, like get attracted more into neuroscience compared to like your other rotations, yeah. like, you know, like cancer yeah. or genetics. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I think I, I can get excited about a lot of science, to be honest. There's some, I have like these, these like things I'm fascinated with outside of neuroscience that I like, re, like always look up papers on my own. But I got really interested in, in Andy Huberman's lab in particular. Um, one, he was, uh, I mean, you know, he runs this podcast now and he, it's just a, you can tell from that podcast that he is very um, well-spoken and like easy to listen to and very convincing <laughs> on a lot of things. And he really was so enthusiastic and so motivated. It was it was a, a, a little bit infectious, right? Like, man, he thinks this is really cool. It's got to be like the coolest thing. And it really was. Uh, so he studied um, his whole career. Um, he studied um, the development of the visual system. Um, which is kind of rare to have be in the same field for your whole, whole career, but he's totally an expert on this. And he was delving into this, this part of the question where, you know, how does the eye even hook up with the right parts of the brain? And, you know, at the time, very little was really known about how any of that worked. And so that's, you know, the fact that it was so unknown, um, the visual system is so important. Uh, and I really did like development work. So it was really a great fit. Um, I was going to be his first student, which I also felt was a good fit for me. Um, yeah, coming from Chris Doza, which is, you know, HHMI, very large, you know, I saw that a lot of students didn't get to you know, interact with them too much. Um, I thought this would be a good chance for me to interact a lot. <laughs> and we did interact a lot. You know, he was there um, all the time. And um, uh, he, you know, we had lab meetings every four weeks. We presented each of us every four weeks <laughs> in lab meetings. Um, so I got a lot of like one-on-one uh, -on -one training. We had like one-on-one -on -one journal clubs. Um, he spent a lot of time uh, helping with presentation skills and writing skills. And so, yeah, it ended up being a, a really good fit in that way. That's great. I, I can kind of see how like that enthusiasm has been so infectious. Um, and so what were what were some of the highlights and major discoveries of uh, your thesis? Yeah. So, like I said, we were really trying to understand how the retinal ganglion cells of the eye, which are the output neurons of the eye, connect to the correct parts of the brain. There's over 20 different in the mouse. There's over 20 different areas they can connect to. And over, you know, uh, well, depending on who you ask, dozens to more different kinds of RGCs in the eye. So how this sort of like matching works um, was really poorly understood. And so my work was focused on two questions. One is, um, does the timing of 
the birth of the RGC, so when the cells differentiate, um, does that dictate um, their strategy for finding their targets in the brain? Turns out it does. And then the other question was, what sort of molecular mechanisms are required for that matching? And um, turns out that uh, cadherins, uh, contactins of these um, cell adhesion molecules um, provide this sort of matching between the RGC axons and the parts of the brain that they're supposed to be connecting with. Um, the timing part was really interesting. So um, basically what, what I found was that as the cells are born, they are able to start forming their axon and, and migrating into the brain. But very, very early on, the, uh, the embryonic brain is, I mean, there's barely any boundaries. And some of the, some of the nuclei aren't even formed yet. Uh, so those, those axons kind of are much more exploratory. And then what happens is they sort of um, explore through all these areas. They are, they're sort of sampling targets that they shouldn't even be in. And then the later born neurons, as they are uh, developing and push their axons through, these are you know days later, which is quite a bit of time for uh, development of a mouse, um, they, are a, they are much more precise. So they only really sample the targets that they are supposed to innervate to begin with. Um, so this is something that we, we didn't really know before. Um, yeah, so the, by the end of my thesis, I was able to kind of talk about the, the timing, the molecules, um, sort of the cellular processes that are really important for matching specific types of RGCs in the eye to their targets in the brain. Great. That's very interesting. Uh, but after your PhD, you kind of transition to working on another really interesting topic, which is how the brain controls like sickness symptoms. Um, so how did that transition happen um, yeah. in terms of like your, your scientific interest and, and also uh, kind of like stepping back a little bit, were there crucial moments during graduate school that kind of like made you decide that pretty much inspired you to continue down the academic path? Were you also considering industry at that point? Yeah, that's a, a super important question. Um, so I, uh, for me, I am driven by my interest and my curiosity and I can get interested in a lot of things. And so I knew that if for any reason graduate school didn't work out, and this maybe it's also like merging with my imposter syndrome that I've <laughs> had since I was younger. Um, I always thought, you know, if this doesn't work out, I will go into industry and be just fine because I live life for a lot of reasons. And one of my biggest concerns actually was um, having a family at some point. I wasn't going to start that in grad school, but I knew perhaps postdoc and um and you know, soon after that, so I was really concerned with being able to balance family and, and lab life. And I thought, man, if I have to choose, I'm going to choose family. That's that's just what it's going to be because that's that's my life priority, right? I can go in, into the industry and find a really cool job doing some awesome science and be just as happy, you know. So I I decided that if it if for any reason I didn't get a postdoc, I didn't get a faculty job, I would be just fine. And so that. By doing that, though, I think I took a lot of pressure off of those transitions. And so, you know, each of the, each transition I've had in my career has been pretty low stress on me. I just have been, like, interested and excited and allowed that part of my personality come through on interviews and things like that and not let the stress sort of dictate my mental health, which is also really important um, for scientists in academia. So um, when I was looking for postdocs, and I, I decided to go to the postdoc route because I really liked it. I really like I really enjoyed the flexibility and the the creativity and the different sorts of things I could explore as a scientist. You know, you, this is a limitation in industry. Unfortunately, um, you're kind of siloed a little bit, um, depending on how early the you know the um, how young the company is. So. I really wanted to continue on the postdoc route, see where it went. Um, I had a pretty successful grad career. I felt like I was in a good position to keep going. So when I looked for postdocs, I was trying to move a, a little bit away from development, actually. I felt like we can learn a lot about development in the systems where we know a lot about the adult circuits. And this is true for the visual system and other sorts of sensory systems. But we can't study development of the rest of the brain until we know what those adult circuits look like. And um, so I was looking for labs that study sort of general questions of like how the brain works. And I applied to, you know, several different labs, went on several different interviews. And I ended up joining Catherine Dulac's lab at Harvard. And the reason, um, it's, it's funny because that was like my last interview. I was totally set on another one before I went there. Um, and again, it was sort of like a feel out. I sort of like had a feeling. It was like the, the excitement, the motivation, the like, um, 
the, the culture that she had in that lab was was really awesome. And I was instantly gravitated towards towards that culture. Everyone in the lab worked, I mean, it's a large lab as well, so 12 people. I was kind of excited to move more towards a more independent <laughs> style, so the large lab was good for me. Um, but people worked together, they collaborated, they, they were friends outside of lab. It was like, and on top of that, all the projects were very different. So every lab meeting was like something interesting and cool. Uh, and, and that's what I was like, man, this is where I got to be. Like, I have to be there. Um, so I was super, super excited that um, the interview went well. It was a little bit um, crazy of an interview, actually, because my computer died the morning the morning of the interview. And so you typically on these postdoc interviews, right, we give um, we give a, uh, a, a seminar to the lab or um, neighboring labs. And with my computer dead, I couldn't really do that. Luckily, um, Andy Huberman had burned in my brain <laughs> how to give a talk, and I ended up giving a ch- full chalk talk uh, oh, on a whiteboard, wow. actually, for my interview. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I remember, I remember uh, uh, a postdoc in the lab, he was, like, kind of joking now I know this, but at the time he was like, how do we know this is real? Because <laughs> I'm, I'm just drawing the accents, you know? Like, And I'm, like, showing the I'm like, well, it's published, so I can pull yes, it up yeah, for you. Papers. Yeah, yeah, but it was it was just it was like the craziest story, and I, I luckily for me, Catherine was not um, she was more impressed than she was disturbed <laughs> by the turn of events, and so I was super excited that she offered me a position, um, and I couldn't wait to get started. But you know, when I got there, it was like you know her lab has studied so many diverse things, um, mostly centered around social behaviors, but. I was really interested in how the internal stage or the internal environment actually changes our outwards outward behavior, and so, um, you know, I we had several like you know long chats about things to work on. I was I you know I thought about maybe hormones, um, but she had had a recent conversation with um, Jim Simons from the Simons Foundation about how. Um, a subset of autistic kids, they, it's about 20% we know now, they have what's called the fever effect, where um, if they have a, a short-term uh, fever that is, you know, um, annotated by their parents, they, the parents also noted that there was um, changes in their behavior. And a lot of these changes were uh, positive. So they had more, um, they were more verbal than before, or they had more eye contact, less um, of these sort of um, negative behaviors. Uh, less outbursts, those kind of things. And it was totally temporary. And as soon as the fever was gone, they went back to how they were before. And so this fever effect, which has been noted for a long time by physicians, was something that Jim Simons was really interested in, in studying. And so she asked me about it. I was like, that's that's super interesting. And, and you know, we talked about like how the what the cause of that might be, and maybe it's like temperature. But I was like, no, because like you, they if they're running, right, they raise their body temperature. A fever temperature is not that much higher than than normal, so I'm not sure it's temperature. And I was thinking that well, it's then if it's not the body temperature itself, it's the immune system, and this is sort of an internal state, right, where we're in this like immune activated state, and it's totally altering the the behavior of these kids. So that's that's sort of the, the long-winded version of how I got into studying sickness behaviors. Um, the idea at first was to find the neurons that are generating fever and then try to see how they might be connected uh, to social behavior circuits. That's that's super interesting. I never thought that there's going to be also like a social, um, slight social behavior aspect. We'll we'll get to that. But before that, so it's it's just such an interesting topic. And when we think of sickness symptoms like fever, we mostly just think of the immune system fighting the pathogens, right? So yeah. and your paper describes this whole communication between the immune system and the brain and how there are hubs like coordinating like a whole suite of symptoms, including like fever and, and loss of appetite. So so maybe just tell us more about, you know, the major uh, findings from your postdoctoral work and, and um, kind of what tools and techniques you used. Yeah, certainly. So, you know, the goal was to find the neurons involved. And we had an idea that um, the hypothalamus is likely really important. Um, if you stick an electrode in certain parts of the hypothalamus, uh, you get a change in body temperature. So, um, at the time, the, the th- so-called thermostat of the brain had not really been identified yet, but it was in the same, you know, this preoptic area of, of the hypothalamus. And although that area, those neurons were identified a, a year or two later. Um, but what I did was basically like a whole brain screen, but focusing a bit more on the hypothalamus, where I looked for neurons that were activated by um, a short-term uh, immune response. So I injected basically ground-up bacterial membranes um, called lipopolysaccharides. And this is where like the, the proteins are that um, your immune system kind of um, 
uh, notices uh, that are on bacteria. So it activates the immune system temporarily. We give them a small enough dose where it's not detrimental to the mice. They recover just fine. And then I looked in the brain using um, a, a protein expression of a gene called CFOS, which indicates a neuron has been recently activated. It's not the best marker for these things, but it's a great way to screen um, for areas that might be important. And uh, perhaps unsurprisingly, there's this area in the preoptic area of the hypothalamus that was that just lit up like super bright. It was really consistent, um, and it was very different between the saline controls and, and the sick mice. And so this area is also interesting because of the location. So it's really close to what's called a circumventricular organ. And these are discrete regions of the brain that have uh, a different sort of blood-brain barrier. So they have different um, junctions. They are able to sense uh, things that are circulating the CSF fluid. They also have a lot more vasculatures and, and the vasculature themselves are, are also structured a little bit different. Um, so they're able to, this, these, these small regions are able to sense both the CSF fluid, which is really important, as well as um, blood itself. So they're sort of sampling these areas and with a specific expression of receptors um, to do things like uh, change our hormone levels and, and see how thirsty we should be and how much glucose there is. And so they're really important for sort of sensing the external, or I should say the peripheral environment. Um, but I thought, well, perhaps it, they're also important for sensing the immune environment. Uh, perhaps they're able to sense these immune signals directly. And because the neurons that I found are so close, literally adjacent, um, perhaps they, they are also able to kind of sense what's um, circulating in the, in the CSF in the blood. So um, having these, these neurons as sort of a candidate, I used a couple of um, neuroscience tools for cell type manipulation. Um, so expressing uh, DREDS receptors, which allows us to specifically activate just those cells. Um, and then, or uh, DTA-related ablation, so um, using a kind of hijacking a toxin that's expressed only in the cells we want and ablating the, those neurons specifically, and then seeing what the effect was. And I found when I activated the neurons, I got a fever, but not just fever, actually. I also found that there was a change in appetite and um, a change in uh, locomotion. So like they moved around quite a bit less, but there was no change in social behavior which is really interesting. So it means that there's a separate circuit um, controlling social behavior during sickness. So in <clears throat> the, the ablation, we found sort of similar results where we, when the cells were ablated, they um, no longer had this uh, body temperature. Um, they no longer um, um, had this sort of warm-seeking behavior, those kinds of things. So it turns out these neurons are really, really important for um, establishing these sickness symptoms, at least a subset of them, and it's coordinating them. So it's doing more than one thing at once, which is super interesting. It, it suggests that it is sort of this hub, right, the, of communication between the periphery and the brain. And the way that it works using, um, we found this using um, circuit tracing techniques that are, um, you know, pretty specific to the sets of neurons that they're targeting, that these neurons I found connect directly to the thermostat neurons or the warm sensing neurons. They connect directly to the appetite or the hunger controlling neurons and sort of modulate their set points, changing them temporarily just when there is sort of a, the, the sickness signal. Um, I found using uh, electrophysiology experiments that the neurons um, identified do in fact get activated by immune signals. So they actually are sensing immune signals coming from um, the periphery or at least being filtered through the, the specialized blood-brain barrier, but originating in the periphery. Um, and it, but what was really interesting is that these neurons are normally very, very quiet. So even with, without any sort of perturbation, uh, there's not a lot of like um, spontaneous firing. So they really are pretty specific to um, this function of, of communicating the immune signals. Um, so, you know, wrapping it all up, what, what, we, what this really means is that the brain is sensing the immune state. It is actively sensing the immune state through circulation. So it's through your blood, through your CSF fluid. Your brain is able to sense and read your immune state and change behavior as a response. And, you know, this is uh, this is a pretty wide open door now. And now we're kind of branching as, uh, you know, to different sorts of questions that this this opens up to, you know, like, uh, you know, what other what are the other CBOs doing? Are they also uh, generating different sort of hubs for um, this communication. How are other sort of sickness behaviors uh, generated if they're not, uh, it's not happening through this set of neurons, those kinds of questions. 
Right. So uh, do you, do we actually know kind of what causes the, the fever effect or some of the um, the changes in the social behavior with sickness? <sighs> it's a great question. And we don't exactly. So a side project that's not, not published yet, but it's getting closer. We're looking at this question and we're finding that there is specific circuits that are important for, um, for changing social behavior during sickness. Um, but it's funny, actually, what I found was the opposite of what um, is typically found, which is, you know, in mice, if you if mice are sick, they, they tend to avoid other mice. You become sort of antisocial. And you might see, think this is true for humans as well. But there's actually some growing literature showing that sickness can also increase our need for social contact. Um, this is true in, in monkeys um, and in humans as well. So what I found was that exactly that when you put two mice in a cage together that are both injected with LPS, they actually have an increase in this huddling behavior. So although mice that are sick don't really mo- like to move too much, they will um, kind of come together at the side of the cage after about 20 minutes and just kind of hang out together. Um, we thought maybe this is for body warmth, but um, when I uh, did a particular manipulation where I knocked out this immune receptor in a specific subset of neurons um, that we think are important for this, this process, they no longer huddled. So it's like they are still sick, they still have uh, a fever, and they probably and they still go to warmer environments when they're when they're sick, but they no longer huddle. So it really does seem to be a specific effect on social behavior or social interactions. And we found the same thing is true in autistic model mice. So autistic model mice, they uh, there's there's you know many of them. We picked three that were um, really well studied. So they were. Um, established in multiple labs and multiple labs found the social behavior um, defects in them. And we found that when we did the same thing with those mice, they also had this increase in social contact. Um, so it's, it's sort of unclear um, if that's the fever effect itself, if the fever effect is really just like, you know, they have, um, you know, this general defect that is sort of um, circumvented by the the activation of, of sickness neurons in the hypothalamus. So it's, it's a little bit unclear. We don't really have a clear answer, but this project is still ongoing um, in Catherine's lab, and I'm working with a postdoc there to, to finish that up. And she's finding some really, really cool data. So to be continued. Great. Yeah, so many interesting like follow-up questions. Like you said, it has really opened the door to a lot of interesting um, questions and projects. Something else that I also... Uh, find interesting is just like the diversity in, in sickness symptoms, right? Some people had long COVID, others didn't. Some people are more asymptomatic. So do you have any idea about like what causes this diversity? Are there sex differences? That's a great question. So um, I'm also fascinated by this question. Um, where, do the, where does the diversity in sickness symptoms come from? Is it dependent on the on the individual? Is it dependent on the type of pathogen? Um, is it dependent on the sex of the animal? Yeah, 100%. It's got to be <laughs> one of those things, if not all three. Um, so everything we do in my lab now is males and females. Um, all my work in Catherine's lab was uh, males only um, for technical reasons, actually, not because I didn't want to do that. It's just to study fever, you have to look at this change in body temperature, which is really only one degree. And female mice, when they're in their different parts of their estrus cycle, their temperature goes up by a degree. So there's a ton more variability. And I really just wanted to figure out what the circuit was before delving into why um, that might be different. And actually, there's now some um, really cool papers showing the mechanisms as to how um, female mice temperature changes. And um uh, anyways, so now I'm really, I, th- I think it's extremely important to look at females, not just because they're likely different and it's interesting, but because um, not only do they have different neurons in their brain, you know, sexually dimorphic circuits, sexually dimorphic uh, neural identities, they also have very different immune systems. So even like in the spinal cord, for example, um, males and females use very different sort of mechanisms to uh, relay in- inflammation. So like females, for example, will use uh, microglia or T-cells and then males will use the opposite. I can't remember which is which now. Um, <clears throat> but they, um, there's, the way the mechanism is, works is through completely different cell types in males and females with the same behavioral result, but different cell types. So it, I think it's extremely important to look at males and females Um and so my lab is actively doing that. We also are interested in other kinds of inflammatory models. So we're also looking at um, a, a, a mimic of a viral infection. Um, we're also interested in sort of chronic um, LPS injections to see if we can see any difference there. Um, things like long COVID are super interesting, right? So long COVID is one of these things that 
you know, the virus is gone, but we still have these symptoms and why. Um, one of those symptoms that are really common is fatigue. So we're um, actively looking at areas of the brain that might be important for fatigue and how those areas are um, are working in both like, the acute and, and the chronic sort of state of the um, of inflammation and how perhaps it, during a chronic state, those cells continue to be activated even after the inflammation is gone. So uh, we are actively looking at those in my lab now, but we really don't know. This is a wide open field. Great. Yeah. So, so you started your own lab in 2022 um, at the University of Utah, and we already um, spoke about like a couple of different you know, topics that your lab is now pursuing. Um, is there, are there any other uh, kind of new lines of research uh, currently or your lab's current interest that you want to tell us about? Oh my gosh, so many. <laughs> like, I feel like every time I get a rotation student, um, they come up with like a new cool idea that they're, they're looking at. And um, yeah, it's, it's, there's so many fun things to do. So right now we are, we have a couple of projects that are, um, have been, uh, are totally are started and like are moving. And so I actually got really lucky. I had two students join my lab in my first year. So they've been in the lab for, um, one's been in love for a year. One's been here for 10 months. And so they have some really cool data looking at two different things. One is, um, pain sensitivity. So, you know, how we get these sort of body aches, um, when we're sick, which is, it's actually a really interesting question because a lot of the pain field is focused on injury models or irritants or these sort of evoked pain, uh, type of, uh, experiments or pathways, but the body aches when we're sick are not evoked. They are, they are sort of these like baseline, uh, pain levels, um, or, or sensitivity levels, I should say, maybe. And so we're really interested in understanding how and why when you inject a mouse with LPS, they have this, um, they are sensitive to stimuli that are normally not painful at all to, to mice. So we, we can use like um, these little filaments that are different sizes or even just a Q-tip and, and kind of touch the mouse's paw. And um, we get this, uh, this pain response uh, when they're injected with LPS much earlier or to much l- lesser stimuli um, than we do in a saline injected mouse. So why is that? Um, a lot of the work is uh, on inflammation and pain is also looking at the sensitization of sensory neurons in the periphery. But there's a growing body of evidence to show that the brain actually has this sort of ultimate control on what what an animal senses is this pain. Um, and so we're looking at areas of the brain that are activated both during a, a painful stimuli and active during um, LPS and looking for some sort of overlap. So where what parts of the brain um, are, might be important for the intersection of these two pathways. Um, so that's kind of where we're starting at. We're actually getting some really cool candidate brain regions um, to, to follow up on. And, and, you know, because we just started a year ago, we're just still <laughs> getting all the equipment. We need to, to address those questions. But that's actually moving, and we're seeing some really cool stuff. Um, and then the other project I'm really interested in is um, sort of before we even get sickness symptoms, how is the brain even sensing the immune state to begin with? And what parts of the brain are important? So what about these other circumventricular organs? What sort of molecules do they care about? Um, what neurons are around that might be sensing that information? And uh, so my other student is, is sort of doing these large-scale um, experiments looking at the cell types that are involved in these uh, CVO regions, um, how, what, what sort of the gene expression looks like in a saline-injected animal or a poly-IC injected animal, so this viral mimic, how it might be different, how it looks different in males and females, um, with the ultimate goal of trying to find some of these molecular mechanisms that are important for uh, transferring the immune state um, in the periphery to, to parts of the brain. Lots of great science and very exciting, interesting questions. I'm so excited to kind of follow up and, and um, see all the exciting research that comes out of your lab. So outside of research, you have also been really passionate and vocal about like removing barriers for scientists and especially women with families. So could you share with our audience some tips or advice you have about like how you wear all these hats and manage being a, a mom and an academic yeah. scientist at the same time? Yeah, yeah. I think there's a perhaps a little bit of context to this might be important. So um, but like, like I said before, my family for me has always been really, really important. Um, my family life as a kid wasn't super stable all the time. Um, you know, we, uh, we lived on food stamps, you know, that, that kind of situation. We were kind of the low, low income area of town. Um, 
and it created a lot of turmoil at home. Both my parents are alcoholics. It's it's a you know maybe maybe TMI for this, but it's it's important context because my passion really comes from um, trying to uh, find and help people that um, have these sort of backgrounds that um, you know you can't see it on their face. They they don't always show what sort of background they came from and um, what sort of barriers they might have. One of the biggest barriers that I identify with at this stage of my life is is for is, is having a family, and I think um, you know, like any other uh, industry, science is not immune to this. Mothers are often um, uh, not included in things, um, and this has been shown actually scientifically, right? Where you can look at um, the the change in career paths of the, or perhaps. Um, the stage at which women leave science and academia, and it's typically around the time they have kids. And it's not a coincidence whatsoever. And so I was well aware, I was, like I said, as a graduate student even, and was really concerned about where I did my postdoc. Catherine Dulac is, a, um, is, a, is an amazing scientist, total powerhouse. She's got like her ear to the ground on like, you know, what's, what's going to be interesting to a lot of people in terms of the science, but she's also cares deeply about people. And um, she was super supportive of me. And I knew that she would be because she had previous postdocs that had, had kids in her lab. Um, she was extremely important to, uh, supportive of me even during the pandemic, which was a really critical time where I really had to get, um, I really had to get revisions out of my paper. We had limited capacity because of, you know, we didn't want to have too many people ruin that kind of situation that, that first year of the, of the pandemic. She, she found a space for me to work that was separate from everyone so I could spend as much time there as possible. Um, she gave me technical assistance. So she, uh, although it's not typically her style, she started hiring technicians in the lab, partially because I asked and I was like, hey, like, I don't want to slow down on this project. I have no intention of slowing down, but I need some help. You know, I need I need more than like an undergrad, uh, you know, <laughs> doing my, my uh, PCRs for me. I need someone to like pick up some experiments while I'm gone because three months is for maternity leave is one thing. And she also paid for my maternity leave hundred percent, which is amazing. Um, you know, bills are expensive in Boston. Um, so she, she hired a technician. I had that technician trained. Um, then the pandemic happened <laughs> and I was on maternity leave during the pandemic, but you know that, so either way though, the, the fact that she was willing to, you know, sort of, uh, put, money towards like helping me succeed was a big deal. Um, and it really made a big difference. I was out of the lab in five years, even with, or maybe it was almost six, even during the pandemic, right. Which was like a, you know, big, big lag time. So for me, it's really important to continue that sort of support for other people. Um, you know, there are supplements, uh, for labs that are not, you know, catheter lock with HHMI and, and many R1s. Um, there are supplements that come from certain sort of um, NIH um, uh, uh, institutes, but I think I don't think NINDS has that, which is the one we typically go go to. Um, NSF does, so NSF has like a, um, a supplement for um, that can be used for postdocs or faculty when they recently had children. Um, this this sort of supplement is supposed to go towards you know technical assistance, which is so critical. And we don't really like to talk about this because, um, you know, women don't want to like, you know, raise their hand and say, I need help at any point because of society, things like that. Right. Um, but it's not just maternity leave. It's like pregnancy is super hard. Actually. <laughs> Some people are really lucky. I think like 30% of women don't have morning sickness, but the rest of us do. And it's, <laughs> it's brutal and it's, uh, it's debilitating. And, you know, I got through it because of the, um, an awesome undergrad that I had, honestly, um, a technician that was working independently on helping me at the time. Um, but it's super, super hard. And then even uh, once you get over that part of it, if you're lucky enough to get over it in the first trimester, even, which I was not, um, there's the end of pregnancy where you're like barely able to move. <laughs> it's like, uh, you, you are so exhausted and everything hurts and you're still expected to like go do your experiments. Um, you know, so certainly my productivity slowed down a little bit, but I never got, you know, any flack from Catherine for that. She understood. It's totally fine. But I think it's, um, there needs to be a little bit more awareness of like this, this state of, of, of people that are trying to, trying to get pregnant and trying to have children. And, you know, if we don't do this, if we don't, uh, make some strides towards helping those people, we're going to lose them. And, you know, I'm not some genius, uh, by any means, but I have a lot to contribute. And I'm glad that I was with a, an advisor who, um, 
respected that and 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 helped me right otherwise i wouldn't be here um tips and tricks i mean you got to find mentors and support systems that are willing to um kind of help you out when you need it um you know, there's there's all sorts of kinds of mentors. You know, people that can help you help read your proposals and help um, uh, put together talks and help you with your job applications. Uh, and then those that are like, yeah, I've been through this before. Let me tell you what worked for me. And then there's you know the obviously the the solid supportive mentors and, and how much of a difference they can make right and and making that transition easier. Yeah, it's 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 super complicated and and every situation is really different. This is great. Thank you for sharing this. And it's just a, um, a super important like topic that people should be like aware of and, and talking about. And, um, um, and like you said, like it doesn't have to be a choice, right? Like many people think of it as either family or career, mm-hmm. but it really shouldn't be a choice. Um, yeah. And- Unfortunately, a lot of, a lot of older faculty still think it is. <laughs> so you have to find a supportive environment. Right. Um, and just reflecting on the last year as a PI, um, so what has been like the most rewarding thing and what has been um, the challenging thing? Oh, man. Gosh. Well, rewarding is really easy. The students I have are awesome. They're like really good and, and they're good people. And it's like and, and, I, and I just hired a research scientist as well that just got started a month ago. And it's like, you know, it's, it's just the four of us. But they already like each other a lot and they're like friends and like, I don't know, just that the, le- the fact that in just a year I've been able to put together this environment where people feel comfortable and happy and like want to be here is super, it's like way more rewarding than I thought it would be. It's almost like having a second family. <laughs> it's like, it's pretty cool. Um, yeah, I would say, um, you know, getting, uh, get, getting closer or um, getting help from the faculty here at Utah has been also um, pretty rewarding. I found that there's some people that actually genuinely care about my success, which is not true at every university or every department. Um, so that's been super rewarding as well. The challenges in, is in the first year are so unique. Um, you know, it's like trying to order things that are like, you don't even, I don't even know how to work a system to order things. You know, I was never in a lab where I was allowed to order stuff. <laughs> So it's like trying to navigate um, those little things. Every time I wanted to do something that I'd never done before, it took like 10 times as long. I felt like I was bogged down by all these small tasks that are in the long run not important. Um, and so that sort of learning curve was way longer than I expected. And so I feel like at, at now a year, we're just now doing like the really cool stuff that I was hoping to do last year. Um and so the challenges of starting a new lab are, are that, right? It's also like learning um, a different sort of um, time balance, right? As a postdoc, I have it sort of had it sort of figured, a grad student postdoc, I had it figured out like how to balance work life and what that looked like. But now I'm in a completely different life stage. I have a second child now um, and my work is very different. You know, I can't just like be super organized with my experiments and have a schedule lined up and like just like have it you know, already thought about on a previous day. Now every day is super different. You know, I like, I'm sitting in my office and I get a, a knock on the door or I have, and you know, and then all of a sudden I'm in a two hour meeting. It's like, you know, you just can't predict your, your schedule as, e- as easily. And so I'm, I'm figuring out that work-life balance still, you know, how do I, and now when I'm home at night, the hours between five and 8 PM are like total chaos. <laughs> so I can't even like go home and like, uh, try to like answer the email that I didn't get to. Cause then at 8 PM or 8 30, when my first son finally goes to sleep, I'm just, I'm just mentally like so, so exhausted. So I can respond to emails, but I feel like, man, this is, this is one of those emails I should have done when I had a fresh mind in the morning. Um, so anyway, the challenge there as a PI specifically is, 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 learning a new strategy that works for me. And I still haven't quite figured it out yet, but I'm, but I'm actively working on it. Yeah. And uh, throughout our interview, you've, you've mentioned like several things, you know, right from like an imposter, imposter syndrome early in your career to, um, to just like managing being an academic scientist and a mom and kind of like now being in a different, you know, stage of your career where every day is so unpredictable. But so when you when you face different hurdles, like what is the thing that that really helps you, you know, like 
overcome that? You you definitely mentioned about you know having supportive mentors, and um, I'm sure that's that that's an important factor. And and like having this discussion, I really hope like also helps other people and mentors aware of like what as people with different identities and especially women are going through. Yeah, yeah, I think coping mechanisms are really important here. Um, science is hard. Every job is hard, okay? But science is like particularly hard for several reasons. One is that, you know, our goals are long-term, like a five-year postdoc or four years to get a paper. Like, it's a long time. <clears throat> so short-term goals are really important, but coping mechanisms are so critical. And, you know, I, I sort of mentioned that the stability I had when I was a kid was not great, so I've always sought out um, uh, uh, help from mental health professionals throughout my whole life. So, you know, starting super young, my parents helped start that off really early, but I continued to use like free services at my high school, um, in college and in grad school, um, uh, and sort of took a break during postdoc and then now again here. So just finding a sort of a mental health professional is going to help me with the coping mechanisms that I need to use, um, in those different life stages has been like so important, actually, um, critical for my ability to continue, um, dealing with the stress of the job and, and having a positive mindset about it. Um, you know, I, I, I think we often forget about mental health when we're so, so stressed, you know, you don't think, okay, like going to talk to somebody is not going to do anything. Um, but it's, it's, it's seriously life-changing because you just, we're not, we're not, we're in a society that we weren't evolved to be in, right? Evolution took place many, many years before this sort of stress was put on people and the stress that we're under, this chronic stress that we're under oftentimes, um, is, is totally detrimental and people just ignore it, I think. And it's, it's just, it's not an easy fix, but it's, it's something you can actively work on. So I have always made time, um, for my mental health in terms of both active things like, um, going to see a therapist, um, learning coping mechanisms with that person, but also, um, learning how to decompress in a way that's healthy. Right. So, you know, I mentioned my parents, right? They, they picked poor coping mechanisms. I don't choose those things. I choose exercise. I choose um, uh, interactions with my family. Um, those kinds of things that help me really cope with, um, with the job, I think, are just so, so critical. That's awesome. Um, I can really see uh, how also your mentees is also, are also going to just, like, benefit from you I having gone so. through this experience <laughs> and yeah, for sure. Um, do you want to do you want to briefly like share with us just your mentoring philosophy or how your mentors have influenced and kind of shaped your vision for what kind of a mentor you want to be? Yeah, yeah. I think um, I'm still learning um, mentor strategies, but I think I've had some pretty good examples, um, and I think I've had a little bit of experience that has helped. So. I mean, Andy Huberman and Catherine Dulac have extremely different mentoring styles, like a 100%. And so I've taken what I've liked um, from both and, um, you know, discarded the things I thought were not helpful for me. But one thing I've really learned both through working with Catherine in particular and then working with undergrad mentees throughout my postdoc was how different people require different things from their mentor. And typically these are sort of several bins, right? Like, um, <clears throat> how much time they want from their mentor is different for each individual. So how often they want to chat with you, how often they want to spend time talking about experiments, how often they want some feedback is pretty individual. And so I try to make sure that sort of fluctuates depending on the person. And then there's sort of the, the, the motivation factor. So what motivates people? Um, you know, is it like um, short-term goals? We can like set up lab meetings to where they have a short-term goal in mind. Um, it's, is it through like positive reinforcement, which everyone needs, but like some people need maybe a little bit more. Um, and then is it like a uh, level of like maybe ownership? Like sometimes people really need to feel independent and have this level of ownership of their project that um, it, as a mentor, you have to sort of respect that and take a step back and let them sort of figure it out um, with some like a little bit of oversight still. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no one wants to. No one wants to feed anyone to the wolves here. Um, so my my philosophy at the moment is really to sort of uh, balance all of these things as sort of a starting point. You know, starting point being like we meet every couple of weeks. We um, talk about experiments. I come and say hi and see how your experiment's going. I do some some initial training. We do some one on one meetings, looking at um, journal articles that are related to the project, <clears throat> and then um, you know like some positive reinforcement mixed in there. 
Um, letting people know that when they're doing a good job is so important, I think. And then what's going to happen over time is that will fluctuate depending on the person and what they need and what's working, what's not. And so I can I can already say that the two students I have have a slightly different style and slightly different things that what they need from me. And so that's sort of changed my interactions. Um, and I'm I'm totally for that. I think it's really important to as in you know I'm not I'm not just a boss. I'm a mentor, right? So it has to really be this mutual relationship that works for both people. Um, <clears throat> and so I would say if I had to distill my mentorship philosophy, it's to be um, to communicate a lot, um, but really uh, base the base the style on what the student or the postdoc or the research scientist needs. That sounds great, um, and it's been amazing to capture like the highlights of your scientific trajectory and how you've overcome all the hurdles along the way. And you you mentioned like how you also, as part of your coping strategy, have you also rely on, you know, a few things that really help you decompress. So to just also end on a fun note, do you want to share some of your favorite hobbies or your, your typical routine to decompress? Yeah, yeah. I, you know, it's funny. I don't have any like major, major hobbies. Like my husband loves to like ski and golf and stuff. I don't have anything like that. I, my decompression is like, um, I like to cook. I actually really enjoy cooking and making, like I am a subscribed to like New York times cooking and, and finding recipes there. Um, yeah, I think before I had kids, my major coping mechanism was exercise. I really love to, um, lift weights in the gym. I really loved yoga. Um, I was a runner in grad school before I injured myself too much to do that anymore. Um, and so although now exercise is pretty is a little bit harder to, to carve out time for, um, now I'm just running around with children. <laughs> so, yeah, I feel like every weekend we do something like we go to the zoo or like the science museum or, um, or things like that. Um, I, and the thing that I may, okay, maybe my guilty pleasure is, is, um, audiobooks. I love um, fantasy or sci-fi novels. Uh, I'm a little bit obsessed. So, uh, you know, um, on my drive to work or when I was a postdoc on my walk to lab, which is about 25 minutes. Um, yeah, I uh, <laughs> I read these. I, when, I sh- when I should be reading papers, perhaps I'm, I'm listening to, to novels. So no, no, sometimes you need that the time yeah. off to kind of like feel refreshed when you I, come back. I and- think so. I think so. <laughs> Um, and I'm sure running behind kids is a great exercise too. <laughs> um, you, you know, I wish it was a little bit more exercise, <laughs> less like uh, less uh, a snack, uh, being a snack butler. But um, yeah, it's, it's it's a little bit. Thank you so much, Jessica. This was this was yeah. so fun, and and it was really an inspiring story. I'm sure for all of us, it's been such a pleasure chatting with you. Thank you so Thanks much again for your time. Yes, of course.